Welcome to episode 92 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Ed Vasey. I'm the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And today we're going to be talking about poetry. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. Dominic Weston came on with Ali Aziri to tell us about the poetry they were presenting at the virtual Hay Festival, Hay Wi-Fi. William Seagart told us about his very popular poetry pharmacy. And the cartoonist and illustrator Chris Riddell chatted to us about his anthology, Poems to Save the World. We've talked about Wilfred Owen. We've had Juliet Stevenson on to describe the wonderful Ledbury Poetry Festival. So the bar has been set very high. But we we haven't talked about poetry for a long time. So we're back to the subject. Yeah, we are. And um, we thought it'd be particularly good to talk about poetry at the moment as we're facing a bit of a rocky winter ahead. And our guests today are of the persuasion that poetry is an invaluable source of solace during unsettled times. The best-selling author Rachel Kelly is a tireless mental health campaigner following the success of her memoir Black Rainbow. Black Rainbow was about depression and how reading poetry helped her to recover. She's remained a passionate advocate for the therapeutic power of poetry ever since. Next week she has a new book coming out called You'll Never Walk Alone, Poems for Life's Ups and Downs and she's here with us today. Hello Rachel. Hi Charlotte, lovely to be on board. Also with us today is the poet, dramaturgist and literature tutor, Pele Cox, who has a poem afterwards in Rachel's anthology. Pele was one of the first poets to be accepted onto Andrew Motion's creative writing MA at the University of East Anglia. She now focuses on the connection between poetry and great artists as the poet in residence at the Royal Academy of Arts, a post she's held for almost 10 years. She's also been poet in residence at Tate, among other institutions, and we're delighted she's also with us today. Hello, Pele. Hello, lovely to be here. I'm not poet in residence at the RA anymore. What happened? They fired you? (laughs) No. (laughs) What's happened? You only ever get a year, don't you? No, I was there for about 18 months from 2013. So 10 years ago, Mm. (laughs) you were the poet in residence at the Royal Academy of Arts. It was a great springboard. Well, I'd love to know what a poet in residence does at either the Royal Academy or the Tate, where you've also been. Well, Pele can't remember. It's 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's ever living, my residency at the RA, and... It's been a great influence on my work following that. I've been doing lots of things to answer you, Ed, since then. I was poet in residence at Keats Shelley House in Rome, and I did a residency at the British School in Rome. But when I got to the RA, I decided that I didn't want to write poems about the pictures on the walls, because that would be boring for everyone. So I decided to investigate the great artists on show and their relationship to poetry. And the first artist was Van Gogh. And I realised that I'd struck gold because he was reading Christina Rossetti and Keats and Longfellow, amongst others, in his little house in Arles by candlelight. And I figured that the next morning when he got up to paint the sunflowers, those poems would have been running through his veins and providing solace in his mental torment and uh, you know fuel for his creativity um so then when I made this discovery I didn't just want to stand there and read the poems out because I thought I should make them more three-dimensional so I got three I wrote a script assembling extracts of the poems he read and weaving them with his letters and then I plucked out some parts of the Odyssey like um, because I thought he was quite Odyssean there are moments where Odysseus is walking out of the sea and his hair is red in the sunset so um, I got them to stand in the um, Reynolds room and they stood on a dais and they read out this script to the audience and it was the immediacy of Van Gogh's internal world was writ large that night. 
So then I did the other artists on show then. So Rodin, who was great friends with Mallarmé. I got a ballerina to dance round the seated dining guests as Rodin recited La Prémédie d'une Fawn, and she danced with no music just to the poem around the tables in her tutu. And then I did Hockney after that, who was a great lover of Constantine Cavafy and, made, and was, drew his um, etchings of the two men sitting up in bed um, naked because he was so inspired by Cavafy's poems. So I, I felt I could bring their internal lives and creative processes out and remove the mediator so they could have a direct relationship to these artists through poetry. Now, you've got a poem in Rachel's anthology called Afterwards. It's pretty devastating and bleak. So, Rachel, you've organised your poems in this fabulous anthology seasonally. Tell us about why you did that. It came really from poetry workshops that I've been running for five, six years now. That's how I organise my workshops. On the idea that we have seasons of our mind, so we can have a kind of wintry dark season, we can have a more spring-like hopeful season. And actually, the idea of linking our interior state to the outer seasons is something that poets have used through the centuries. So, you know, we can think of, you know, Shakespeare, Winter of Our Discontent. Keats uses a similar idea. And it's just that it's a very good metaphor of, you know, linking the inner and outer season. And I liked it because One of the things I think is very important that in this mental health world at the moment, we're very keen on this idea that we should all be happy all the time. And I think we've gone really wrong on that. We've pushed the dial too too far. And one of the reasons I wanted all the seasons of our mind, you know, hopeful but sad, is because actually all of them are important and valid and, and nobody gets to be happy all the time. So tell us a bit about some of the poems in winter, including Pele's, because there's some you've chosen some really bleak stuff. So the idea is that we all don't feel alone in our terrible hour of loneliness and depression. Yes, I I I think it's you know it's not immediately obvious why maybe a sad poem could be helpful to you, but I, but I think you've nailed it in the sense that you know I've called the book "You'll Never Walk Alone." So it's this sense that somebody else has been through that and they've felt it. But there's something positive in their creativity that they've chosen then um, to write about it and actually uh, kind of give us words for for that uh, feeling of, of a sort of darkness. So, for example, we've got the Gerard Manley Hopkins, No Worse There Is None. And in that poem, he uses this sort of what we might think of as a sort of wintry, dark metaphor of these cliffs. And it says the mind, you know, it, it ha- is as though it has a a cliff from which we've fallen. And I remember being very, in a very bad way myself and understanding this kind of concept of having kind of fallen, uh, this sort of falling and sort of bottomless pit. And in a way, though it is a very sort of bleak image, there's something comforting in that kind of feeling of connection. I think the other really interesting thing about this book, you haven't just put a whole load of poems together. Have you explained to our listeners what more you've done with it? Well, I feel very strongly that that a lot of people just aren't that keen on poetry. They think it's not for them and they're put off it at school. Uh, sometimes, you know, we kind of go over and over and analyse one poem again and again. And, you know, that's the kind of way the curriculum works. And I really wanted it to be something that could be part of people's everyday lives. It could be part of a sort of their mental health toolkit. So more broadly in the sort of zeitgeist of how we're trying to help people's emotional well-being, there's... I think it'd be fair to say that there is 
uh, some less confidence in some of the medical approaches, and there's more interested so sort of what, what might be known as social prescribing. There is some debate about the efficacy of it, but it's things like mindfulness and biophilia, which is being in nature. And I think the role of the arts and all the amazing stuff you do on pod, on your podcast in terms of you know the sheer emotional benefit of the arts and bibliotherapy more broadly. And, you know, this is really becoming quite a thing. It, you know, poetry is beginning to be described in GP surgeries, um, there's little pockets online. As you, you mentioned fantastic people like William Seacart with his poetry pharmacy. I come across it in some of the mental health charities I'm involved with. But it, the whole idea of, of the book is that don't be scared. I'm not just giving you the poem, at least about three quarters of the book is actually me writing about the poems, how you might respond to them, things that you might think are scary and off-putting about them. But but always thinking, and, and maybe Pele wants to jump in here, that the way I think about poets is they're, they're just desperate to connect and communicate with us. So that's what I tried to do, you know, introduce the poems, explain them, and make them accessible and other other ways that poetry can be part of your toolkit you know how you can learn poems how you might do that how you can write poetry so it's very much poetry for the everyday and for your well-being yeah so Polly, i'd love you to respond because you've used poetry in all sorts of extraordinary places including with hedge fund managers can you tell us a bit about that <laughs> well yes first of all just to say that it's been a real privilege to be included in Rachel's anthology Rachel has described my poem in her amazing anthology and I can't tell you how extraordinary it is to read somebody write about your poem who has such authority and knowledge of the greats as Rachel I heard that he was this guy Stuart MacDonald was a hedge funder who was doing poetry and interweaving poets and poetry readings with talk about the economy with these very prestigious head funders in the, on Resonance FM, which is this tinier radio studio in London Bridge. I mean, the, the value of the watches on the hedge funders' wrists is probably more than the little <laughs> building we were in. So I thought, well, surely these guys who are incredibly intelligent and dying to have a creative self, you know, surely I can take this further. So I decided I'd set up a little consultancy and help tutor them in the art of art using poetry. So if they could develop their internal language their vocabulary, their sensitivity, their compassion, using these very, this mode, which is very quick. It's like a poem's like a little satellite. I hope you agree, Rachel. And in this terrible world we're living in, if you can enhance the internal lives, emotional lives of these people who are running the show to a certain extent, then you can change things from the top. One of the things is that we're often just in our heads, you know, think, 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 and feelings are quite frightening for people. Uh, you know, how I am, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, even happy feelings, we sort of skip past them. And one of the things I love about Pele's poem is it allows us to be with that feeling and inhabit that feeling, the sort of terrible feeling of a, of, a, of a relationship breakup. And I think that's something, I don't know if I'm jumping in here wrongly, Pele, but with some of your work with characters who are so quick in their brains, but sometimes they miss that emotional depth. I might just read a little bit from Pele's poem just to give you a sense of a very strong feeling. So... It's called Afterwards by Pelle Cox. He says, It would be good to find a woman as bright as me. She uncurls, thinks, not unlike burial, lying here before light comes. And that's just such an extraordinary sense of that feeling. Uh, those lines, not unlike burial, lying here before light comes. So I think that's something that maybe Pele and I, you know, we we're both keen on that emotional, as, as you were saying, that interior emotional life. 
I'm as a big fan of the National Academy of Social Prescribing. And in my Culture White paper, I talked about the impact of the arts on health. But there was a report out, I think the papers picked it up with great glee. It was published in the British Medical Journal saying it, it makes no difference. I mean, do you have anecdotal evidence, whether it's a hedge funder or just a general reader who's bought your book, about the impact this has had? Yeah, you're so right, Ed. I, uh, there was such a flurry in the mental health world yesterday about that report. And uh, I did chat to various people in that field. And um, there were feelings that some of the methodology could be questioned about the research time and again. And I, I find that in my own work running Healing Words workshops. I run them for charities. I worked at uh, prisons in one, one prison for four years in the education department. The individual effect is just undeniable. You see people transformed. I remember once in a workshop, there was a, a woman and we read the Derek Walcott poem, which is called Love After Love. And I, I put it in my autumnal section because it's a very sort of reflective poem. And it's again, it's about people's sort of interior emotional lives. But it, I don't know if you know it, but it's it goes, the time will come when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome. So it's about the idea that, you know, our main relationship with ourselves and how to have a compassionate relationship. And a woman read this in the workshop and it was it was just electrifying because she'd hitherto been very quiet and she actually started crying. And then she just said this extraordinary thing. She said, I feel understood. And she'd had years of therapy and medication and been in and out of the NHS. But this poem had spoken to her on an incredibly deep level. I think in culture at the moment, culture's become a sort of currency, potentially too much, and that you have to let the people, the readers, the audience have their own experience and not manage them too much. So I, I did this performance about Keats's death at the Keats Shelley House in Rome. I, I crafted the script in a similar way, using only his poetry and letters and accounts from Seven and Adonais by Shelley as the, uh, the language, the body of the text, nothing by me. I mean, you don't need to write your own work inside their story that they do it perfectly well without me better um so anyway because lockdown happened we couldn't perform it at number 50 albemarle street where byron and walter scott used to hang out and chat so i just i said to them look should we make a film and they said no 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 let's wait so then i thought i'm gonna make a film anyway <laughs> So I got some actors who I knew and asked them if they'd like to be involved. And um, Damien Lewis agreed to play Shelley. Nick Rowe played Seven. Christian Rowe played Keats. And they all filmed themselves in their houses during lockdown. Ellie, you know some pretty high profile actors there. Yes, I do. All because of Nick Rowe, really. He's like been a great supporter of mine for, for eight years. He's mar a marvel. But the actors, the great actors I work with, love working with the poetry. So anyway, the film happened and we made an event of it. We screened it at 10pm on the night, 200 years exactly to the day that Keats passed away. And so it was this event. Um, everyone sat around their computers. We delivered it through the British School in Rome on YouTube. And we got 4,000 people watching and you know in terms of mental health a lot of people said that they got they went back to their bookshelves and they took their Keats copy of Keats down and started reading him again and I have friends who have a Downs baby and apparently he was completely captivated by this film I think because he just the language felt so raw it felt so alive you know it was so non-linear. Just a, a complete sort of change of subject I'm fascinated about how you became um, a writer of residence at Andrew Motion's 
course or how does that happen? Oh, I was a mere student back then, Ed. I got onto the course because I was living in Rome. I had, to, I thought I was going to live there forever. I'd had a terrible time with uh, bullying at my boarding school and I just wanted to escape England. So I found a little flat in Trastevere and decided I'd become a poet. I read Seamus Heaney's Redress of Poetry, his Oxford lectures, which if anyone loves poetry, after they've read Rachel's anthology, <laughs> go and buy the Redress of Poetry because each lecture is a profound message to the reader of the meaning and the power of, of language. So anyway, I got a slip disc and I had to come back to England. And as I was lying on the floor in my flat in Islington, I decided I'd apply for his MA course. And by some miracle, I got on. Not not a miracle, Pelle. It's because you're very, very talented. That's why you got on. What happens on the course? Oh, he was a fantastic teacher. You know, it was just a year and he'd say to me, go away and write five poems on one subject, you know, because I was we were always perpetually blocked because it was such a terrifying, you know, challenge to write poetry to order. And I went away and I got Philip Larkin's collected poems out and I decided I was going to write some poems in a Larkin style. And I wrote about five poems about a spider's web. And um, I showed them to Andrew and he said, you're trying to write like Philip Larkin go away and <laughs> go away and write like yourself and that has been my life's you know quest because it's the hardest thing to do so then i ran away and decided i'd write to the tate and ask them if they wanted a poet in residence <laughs> and i knew nick sarota and um he said yes come along because i wanted to i wanted to take poetry into these institutions into these cultural centers and show its worth show how influential it had been on the great artists through history I mean, I think going back to your point, Ed, about how efficacious is it to read poetry? You know, how does it really impact your mental health? Well, Rachel, there is no better advocate for answering this question than you. I mean, your book, Black Rainbow, was an absolutely astonishing journey from lying in a darkened room, being unable to speak, and slowly, slowly, poetry brought you back to life, quite almost, quite literally. I mean, just tell our listeners who haven't read Black Rainbow a, a bit about that journey. I was suicidal, not because I didn't have a good life. In fact, I had a very good life. I had a, a very privileged life. But um, I felt incredibly, incredibly unwell. I mean, so unwell that I'd had enough. And um, I was lying in bed screaming. Uh, I had my mum on one side holding one hand and my husband on the other side. One of the very frightening things about very, very severe depression, or how I experienced it anyway, was I had this feeling of falling. Funnily enough, um, I read Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway recently, and there's a description there of somebody else who feels that they're falling. I referenced that earlier with the, with the Manly Hopkins, this idea of falling. Anyway, I was screaming, I want to die, I want to die. And my mum started very softly saying a line from the Bible, and the Bible, as we know, is absolutely chock-a-block full of poetry. And the line was from Corinthians, and the line was this, my grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I'd say that was the first sort of stirring of positive will, because it changed the story in my head from this kind of incredibly negative, I want to die, to thinking, yes, there's something awful happening, but maybe you know, I will come through stronger. My strength will be made perfect in weakness. And that was really how it started with one-liners. I then became very drawn to George Herbert, the religious poet. He has this amazing description, which I have in the book, of severe depression. He talks about it being like guilty of dust and sin. So that's an extraordinary line. But, but he also 
has a, a sort of sweet, loving voice, quick-eyed love, that's his expression. That was how it sort of sort of really made such a difference to me. But but what I would say is we've got loads of data on this. I mean, it's not a it's it's a well-trod path right back from when Apollo was the god of music and the god of medicine, the god of poetry. He he was all of those things. You know, the ancient Egyptians used to write poetic lines on bits of paper and and then swallow them as a way of healing. And the whole the, it, it, it's, it's it's a long story. And now we I keep looking at fresh bits of data. There's a study only last year. Uh, they were looking at people, children actually in hospital, and if they started reading poetry, how they uh, found that all sorts of emotions were easier to handle. And we've got masses and masses of data about the benefits of writing poetry. So I think it's actually quite well known now. And 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 I mean, Ed's done amazing. Uh, you know, you're 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 right on this topic with the power of the arts to help our our emotional well being. I mean, I know I have a secret, you know, go to poem in my head and Rachel you at the end of your book you write about the benefits of memorizing one I mean it's partly in my head because it's an easy one to remember but I just wondering if either of you have a go-to poem well I certainly do but Pelle do you want to go first my go-to poem is the sentimental vein that runs through my body and it's the reason I learnt it because I just think it's one of the great love poems it's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning and it's one of her sonnets from the Portuguese and whenever I'm feeling sad or scared or I want to impress someone or I'm in love I recite it out loud yeah my, mine is um is probably uh, Herbert who who wrote a series of love poems it's interesting both of us drawn to love in a way but his last verse is extraordinary because for me, it's the two voices in our head. I think all of us can have a very negative, destructive, anxious voice. And then we all need to cultivate this gentle and more loving voice. And that's, in a way, what a lot of these poets do for me. So this is this is the last verse of Love 3. And I think you'll hear these two voices um, and the guilty sort of not good enough voice, which was me when I was very depressed. So, uh, you can hear this voice. Truth, Lord, uh, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. He's talking about his eyes. He says he's marred his eyes. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. And it is actually a religious poem. So it's talking there about taking communion and and, and sort of communing, kind of taking um, the body of God, body of Christ, as it were. But actually, that was a big thing for me when I was unwell, is not being able to eat and not to be able to sit and be part of normal life and kind of every the everyday. So for me, that was kind of a really important part of recovery. And, and once again, you know, a poet nails it. When you go into prisons with your healing words, is there a, a sort of introductory poem that you use to sort of rally prisoners to your cause? What's your secret poem? Charlotte. Yeah, let's have yours first. I'm a great fan of Gerald Manny Hopkins, always. And I rather like a poet. It's actually called a nun. It's called Heaven Haven. And it's the subtitle is A Nun Takes the Veil, which I'm not, I'm not necessarily going down that road. But it is a very beautiful poem about finding a space where there's complete peace and tranquility. Charlotte, that's that's the poem I the first, the poem I brought to my first class with Andrew Motion when he asked us to bring a poem. No way! <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. Can, can we can we hear a bit of it? Just have you do you know any of the lines? I do. What was it called? Heaven Haven. I remember it like it was yesterday. 
I have desire to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp and sided hail and a few lilies blow. I mean, it just, it, it's always in my head, Charlotte. Is it? Well, that's... Wow. <laughs> yeah, go on. Do the second verse. And I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the ha- havens dumb and out of the swing of the sea. Sorry, I got a bit emotional there. Oh, it's a marvellous poem, isn't it? It's just absolutely... That's good. We want you to get emotional, Ed. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the whole problem. Most most people are not in touch with their feelings. Oh, tell me about it. Now, <laughs> the, the biggest question that's been left unanswered is why you're called Pelle. <laughs> well, just quickly, because it's a 50-year-long story. I was named after one of the greatest footballers who ever lived. I was named after him because I was born in the... Seven, nine, I was conceived in 1970 when they just Brazil had just won the World Cup. And my mum thought he was a lovely person and my dad thought it had a beautiful sound. And ever since then, I've carried his name inside me and I've been an ambassador for him. And I don't have any interest in football, but he has changed my life. And I think it's the same for po- with poetry. You know, you can have that side to your life, which is disconnected, but describes you in another way. I've met Pelle. Oh, damn you. Have you? I met him at 10 Downing Street. Is he as lovely as they say? Yeah, I just had a picture of me framed with Pelle and me <sighs> sharing a football, but I got him to sign a um, autograph to my son, so I framed it that. It's, it's my way of ensuring that my son has my picture in his bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky you. My wife was born in 1970. I think I'm going to start calling her Pele. <laughs> <laughs> it is a beautiful name, isn't it? Mm, it is. It's, it's a very beautiful name, yeah. Well, look, all I can say is thank you both for putting it in the back of the net on this brilliant podcast. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. Everyone, thank you. Yeah, ditto. Next week, we're going to be visiting a groundbreaking exhibition at Philip Mull's Gallery on London's Pall Mall because it's the first time ever that the Victorian artist Sarah Biffin has been given a solo show. Born in 1784, Sarah Biffin became a hugely successful society miniaturist and portraitist, but only after overcoming the fact that she was born without arms, with exactly the same condition as Alison Lapper, the artist who was sculpted pregnant in 2005 by her friend Mark. Mark Quinn for the fourth plank on Trafalgar Square. We'll be talking to Alison Laffer about why this exhibition, Without Hands, represents such an important turning point for artists with disabilities, as well as to Philip Mould and Ellie Smith, the exhibition's researcher and co-author of the exhibition's catalogue. Goodbye. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest, Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to here is profiling please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk take care bye